I'm Tom Reaney, host of Jazz All the Mode, and I'm speaking uh, this afternoon with Bob Wilbur, the uh, saxophonist and clarinet player um, who's uh, visiting the area and will be celebrated uh, next week, will be honored next week at the University of New Hampshire. We'll be giving a concert and and um, some of Bob's uh, memorabilia and papers and uh, I understand are uh, going to become a part of the archive of the University of New Hampshire. That's right, yeah. How was that arranged? Well, I started uh, going up to the University of Hampshire to do uh, artist in residence some some years ago. There's a fellow who runs the jazz program there named Dave Seiler, and he's got a very innovative and good program. He he brings in people like, uh, well, say Clark Terry for a whole week or Milt Hinton for a whole week, and so the students get a chance to talk to people with the experience and give them a better a better idea of what music is all about. So he's, um, I've been going there, so we've been very close friends. I was one of the guests many times. Um, and he uh, asked me to come up this week because they're celebrating the opening of the Bob Wilbur archives. What happened was we kept g- gathering all this material uh, old uh, uh, recordings, uh, notes, uh, photographs, newspaper articles, and everything. So finally, uh, the the garage was so full of these boxes of stuff that I actually I couldn't get the car in the garage. So that was my big motivation to do something with them, maybe burn them. But but Dave Sutter said, "Oh no, we'd love to have them here at, uh, at the college. We'll have a." Uh, at, at, at the university, we'll start, start a Bob Wilbur archives. I said, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. And so it's the opening of the archives, and also Dave has put together a big band. We're giving a concert on, uh, I think it's the 20th. I think it's uh, yeah, next Monday night. Next Monday, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, in these boxes, are they uh, 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 primarily, uh, uh, are they essentially large boxes of scrap? Book materials, or is it a combination of scrapbook materials and well, and actually, sheet music and uh, big plastic cases. Yeah, yeah, and they're sure. all piled up on either side of the garage wall. So, and I just couldn't get the car in. So, <laughs> Pug says we got to do something about that. Pug's my wife. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, and uh, through the University of New Hampshire. Now, what what uh, do you imagine you'll be playing next Monday uh, when you? Well, what we're going to do is he's assembling this big band and. Uh, Dave was particularly interested in in having the um, the band play some of the uh, recordings I made in a in a couple of CDs for Arbor's Records called the Unrecorded Benny Goodman. I discovered uh, I went up to Yale University where Benny left a lot of his uh, uh, archives and stuff like I have here uh, that they had the Benny Goodman papers which listed all the recordings that he'd made. So I spent a couple of days there going through the Benny Goodman papers, also with the, the, the Goodman discography, I discovered that there was over 300 arrangements which Benny had commissioned but never recorded. Mm-hmm. So I got this bright idea. Why not the unrecorded Benny Goodman? And the great thing is they, they, people can't say, well, you know, Wilbur's, it's, it's good version, but it's not as good as Benny's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Sneaky. There's nothing to compare That's with, right, huh? yeah. yeah. So the, yeah. we did two, two volumes of that. First one was all Fletcher Henderson, and mm-hmm. then the second one was, I think, had about 15 different prominent arrangers of the 30s and 40s periods, and people like uh, 
Mary Lou Williams, and of course Mel Powell, who was with Benny's band, and uh, Benny Carter, Eddie Sauter, and you know. Mm -hmm. So it was very successful. And then uh, Paul Sharon, who led this band that uh, we we used on the recording. It's a big band in Toulouse, France, and they've been going for about maybe 15 years or more now. They don't work that much because it's hard to get work for a 15-piece band, but they've done uh, quite a lot of recording. They started out doing a recreation of the Jimmy Lunsford band of the 30s, and then they went on to do many other groups, Louis Armstrong, and I did the, the Goodman things with him. And uh, he called me the other day, a couple of months ago, and said, you know, I'd love to do a whole CD of just your own arrangements. And I said, well, that would be great. He says, I'll figure some way to pay for it. Mm -hmm. I, then I talked to Matt Domber at Arbor's Records about And he says, oh, couldn't we have that on Arbor's? So that's the start. And so maybe that was at least eight months ago. And as my wife says, you've been doing nothing but writing music for the last eight month, eight months, you know. Because on a CD, as you know, you, you have to fill up more or less sort of 70 minutes mm. of time. And that's a lot of arrangements. Mm -hmm. And I, I, like, I like the old format, which I guess to some extent was dictated by the length of the 78 records of three minutes or a little more, you know. I think it's an ideal form for uh, jazz music. Uh, Artie Shaw once said, you know, there's two forms of music. Uh, in Europe, it's long-form music, and in America, we have short-form music, which is jazz, you know. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, oh. that project started now, and I finally I finished all the arrangements, sent them off to Paul, and now he's copying them. And we, uh, we meet at the end of the month, and I'll be re re uh, rehearsing the band, and uh, then we'll have a couple of days of recording and a couple of days of listening, and that'll be it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I know that many of your musical models were those who excelled in that three-minute idiom of um, of uh, the pre-LP era, the Coleman Hawkins and Shoeberry and Lester Young. And, uh, of course, um, uh, my orientation to you, Bob, uh, began with... Uh, uh, learning of your association with Sidney Bechet. Right. And uh, would you care to tell us a little bit about uh, where you were in your life at that time and how your connection with Bechet uh, uh, began? Well, I was, uh, I had met Bechet very briefly uh, at a jam session held at the Pied Piper in Greenwich Village, which is a jazz club, and it was like a maybe Sunday afternoon. And uh, it was run by Wilbur de Paris, the trombonist, and it was called uh, Swing Soirees. So this particular week, it was going to be Sidney Bechet as a guest uh, artist. And so uh, I was living in Scarsdale, where I'd gone to high school and so forth at that time, a suburb of New York. And so I went in there, and uh, the band included, it was a marvelous band. It had uh, Mary Lou Williams was on piano, and uh, <clears throat> let me see, who else was it? Uh, Wilbur de Paris on trombone, naturally, he was running the thing. Uh, Bill Coleman on trumpet. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure of the uh, drummer, bass player. But it was an all-star band, and of course, Sidney. And, and uh, I, I'm in there, and Sidney walks in. He has he had a great big dog, Butch, uh, a, a huge, uh, uh, what's that, a really big Great dog. Dane. Great Dane, yeah. No. And uh, so I got, I got a chance to speak to him after the first set, 
And I said, Mr. Bichet, I, I play uh, clarinet and uh, a little bit of soprano. He said, I said, but you know, my uh, gums are getting very sore. And he says, well, Bobby, you got to build up a callus. And that's <laughs> my first conversation with the great Sidney Bichet. So that started my interest in him. First thing I ever heard of him, I walked into a record in our local record store in Scarsdale, and uh, in those days they would, you just had Victor, Decca, and Columbia, and a new a new release from these uh, companies would be set up on the on the counter, because most of the bands in those days they would have only one release a month, you know, so here's a new record on the um, um, Black Seal Victor, Sidney Betchett. Mm-hmm. And his New Orleans feet warmers I said that's a funny name. I wonder who they are. And he and at those days, of course, you could take the record, go into the booth, and play it. So I put took the record and went in. And first thing I heard was this saxophone. I said, "What kind of a saxophone is that? Mm-hmm. Said, it's not an alto. It's not a tenor. What is that?" And I read the line and it was a soprano sax. But it was not a what we call a traditional recording at all. It was very much in the swing idiom, and it included a young, maybe 21-year-old Charlie Shavers on trumpet, and it had Big Sig Hatlett on drums, Willie the Lion Smith on piano. And it was two tunes that I was familiar with because my father played piano all his life just for his amusement and enjoyment. But he... Uh, he liked a, a lot of the Broadway show tunes, and he particularly liked a, su- a song that he heard Art Hickman play mm-hmm. in 1919 when he was on the road. He he, he was a traveling kind of a salesman for Macmillan, the publisher, and uh, he said they played a marvelous song called Rose Room. So and he used to play it all the time. So on one side of this record was Rose Room, and the other side was Lady Be Good, and I'd heard of that too. I think my father played that. So to, listen, and a familiar song. I remember that uh, uh, "Lady Be Good" ended up with a riff. It was swing music, and I was familiar with swing. I'd been listening to Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw and Duke Ellington and the bands, you know. So, uh, but I was intrigued with this soprano sax, and that was my introduction to Bechet. Yeah. And he was playing soprano on both of those uh, songs. Yes, that's at right. The time. Yeah. yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then uh, that led to uh, your making the pilgrimage to uh, Wilbur de Paris's session there in the village. That's and, right. Uh, to uh, meet Bechet for the first time. And then, uh, where did you learn to pronounce his name differently than uh, Betchet? Well, I I'd, I'd gotten to know Mez Mesro when I was still in high school. Mez was playing with Art Hodes. They had a group on Fifty uh, Second Street at Jimmy Ryan's. And I, I would, uh, had met them both. And so uh, we had a hot club, which I, I formed at high school. And f- as our final uh, thing for the year, I decided that we should have a jazz concert and maybe see if we could invite some of the you know, prominent New York players to come up. So I figured Mez is the one that could get the group together. Mm-hmm. And so I got permission from the high school and everything to use the auditorium mm-hmm. after, after school. And we by then we'd formed our own little jazz band. So uh, I called Mez and said, "said Mez, can you put together a band uh, and come up and play a concert here at Scarsdale High School?" He said, "Yeah, man, oh, I'd love to do that." 
see, Mez liked, liked to talk with kind of a southern dialect because mm. he really wanted people to think that he was black, you yeah, know. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it was, so I said, yeah, who can we get? I said, well, I would love to have Eddie Condon on, on guitar. Yeah, okay, well, I'll get him. And uh, let me see, I'll put together a band. And so he came up and we met the band at the uh, station and uh, they wanted to know, first of all, where a bar was. <laughs> so it was it was only maybe 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock, and they were maybe had just gotten up, you know. Mm -hmm, so uh, I took them to a bar, and then we had, they had a few drinks, and then they felt better, and we drove up to the high school. Well, the band consisted of Mez on clarinet, of course, and also Rod Kless on clarinet, Wilbur de Paris on trombone, uh, Mm, let me see, who was uh, uh, Danny Alvin on drums, who was week, working with Art Hodes and uh, Mez, and uh, I think Pop Foster mm -hmm. on bass. Mm -hmm. And who was on trumpet? Sterling Bowes was mm -hmm. on trumpet, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. who, Sterling was a marvelous player, but he had a problem. By the, by the second set, he would begin to get missing a lot of notes, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. had uh, obviously had a drinking problem. Mm -hmm. So... We marched into the school, and the, some of the uh, faculty were standing around. What's that smell? <laughs> they could smell alcohol. And so, well, they they weren't too happy about that. But anyway, we opened the concert maybe three thirty after school, with our little band, our little mm -hmm. jazz band. Mm -hmm. And then the second half was was the all stars. And then we, at the end, we combined the two bands and played some kind of blues or something. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that was uh, uh, that was one of my my main contributions to <laughs> music at uh, Scarsdale High School. <laughs> <laughs> now, did hearing that uh, a record by uh, Bechet in the local record store uh, uh, create in you uh, uh, an interest in um, in you know classic or hot jazz uh, as you know, distinguished from what you were already familiar with, with Goodman and Shaw and Ellington? Did, uh, uh, I, I almost want to ask, like, were you a little bit out of sync with your own high school classmates in having, uh, you know, developed an interest in Bechet, Mesro, de Paris, well, figures like that? Well, uh, we were, there was a small bunch of us that were, uh, and as I say, my f first introduction really to uh, um, really the, the the best of the jazz. I mean, I started listening to popular music and I loved it, but then I gradually made a distinction between the uh, the, the hot bands mm -hmm. and the sweet bands, mm -hmm, so to speak. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So uh, I, I had a pretty good idea and I started hanging out with these guys who were two years older and after school and listening to, to records and everything. So I was gradually developing a knowledge of of popular music, but specifically jazz. So, uh, yeah, we were a very small bunch, and, and we kind of hung out separate from everything else, you know, because mm -hmm. we had a real passion for music. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, uh, by the time I had Mez and the boys up, I was pretty sophisticated in knowledge of, of jazz. Mm -hmm. uh, the thir first thing that... We did with meeting these guys. It was the first time that I heard things like Jellero Morton's Red Hot Peppers, the Louis Armstrong Hot Five. I knew of Louis Armstrong has a, 
a leader of a big band, you mm -hmm. know, sure. and not one of the really prominent bands in that era. But uh, I was until I heard Lewis, I thought Harry James was the greatest trumpet player the world had ever heard, you know. Mm -hmm. And then my, I had a lovely aunt who bought me a record. In fact, she bought me two records. She went into the record store and said, my uh, nephew wants, he likes jazz. Have you got any good jazz records? I'd like to give him a jazz record for Christmas. Well, the, the salesman, God bless him, said, well, we've got a new recording, a reissue of records by Frank Teschmaker. <laughs> and he says, it's kind of old-fashioned jazz. And she says, well, that sounds good. And then he said, oh, we've got a new release by, uh, by Benny Goodman. And the song is called Benny Rides Again. And the other side was The Man I Love. Well, I listened to those. I, I didn't understand Man I, uh, Benny Rides Again at first, but I, I grew to really love it. And then I listened to this Frank Teschmacher, and it did sound kind of tinny and a little out of tune. I didn't, re didn't really like it. The first thing that I did like was Muggsy Spaniard took a chorus on Nobody's Sweetheart, mm -hmm. and, and it, it was very much in the Armstrong vein, you know. I said, oh, my, that, that guy is really good. So that was my introduction to uh, classic or early jazz. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, so by the time I first heard Bechet, uh, I was getting pretty interested in uh, some of the different styles of jazz. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But a, a few years later, of course, I was, we, we, I was listening to everything. Uh, the, the first records of Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie came out. I think the first one was um, Groovin' High and a few other things. And, and we, we all we listened to it and bought it and bought the record. We thought it was funny. I mean, we didn't really kind of take it seriously. But uh, uh, so I was never what you would call a moldy fig because we, we listened to everything, mm -hmm. you know. Because yeah. as I say, my introduction to Bechet was as a swing player. Yes, sure, sure. Um, you know, just as an aside, I happened to watch David Letterman last night, his late-night TV show, and it was a repeat from just a couple of weeks ago, and he had the actor Michael Douglas on, whose father, Kirk, yeah. played the, uh, the, the role in Young Man with a Horn, right, yeah. um, in which Harry James goes to the trumpet parts, and uh, Letterman said to Douglas, who was that about? And Douglas said, I guess it was about Harry James. <laughs> and somebody yeah, must yeah. have shot something at the Letterman's <laughs> headphone because all of yeah, a sudden, yeah. no, a Bix, Bix Beiderbeck. Yeah, and right. Douglas said, whatever. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. There are these two icons of yeah. our culture who knew yeah. nothing, really. Know, you know? Yeah. How did you, uh, so you ended up going over to Bechet's in Brooklyn? and What happened and, next uh, was uh, I, I you know, got into Mesro and I got a call. And I'm still living in Scarsdale, and uh, it's Mez. He said, Mez, Mez, man, hey, how you doing, Bobby? Uh, you know, Bache, and he, that was his pronunciation. Bache is opening a school of music, and uh, I thought you'd like to know about it. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, yeah, where's the school? Well, he's just in his home, and he lives way out in uh, Brooklyn Heights, you know. Along, no, not Brooklyn Heights, uh, part of Brooklyn, way away from... Uh, uh, Manhattan. Mm -hmm. uh, what was it called? I can't remember. But anyway, uh, I said, oh, my gosh, that's great. Could you talk to to uh, Mr. Bechet and see if I could 
come over and maybe have a lesson with him, you know. So he, I set you up for uh, next Tuesday at 1 o'clock. Now, here's how you go. You take the subway into New York, and then you transfer. You go down. You take uh, the train into New York and transfer to the subway, go down to uh, Bur uh, Borough Hall, Borough Hall, and then transfer to another and another train, finally yeah, ending up uh, in the wilds of, of Brooklyn, way out, Sheepshead Bay. That's oh, where it was. Oh. So that was my first first introduction. I had met Sidney, but that was the second time I really seen him. So I go up to the house, and there's a sign outside of the door: Sidney Bechet School of Music. And so I learned uh, that what had happened was Sidney told me he says, "Oh, that sign. Well, I got this friend who's a sign pa uh, sign painter, and he made the sign up, and I just tacked it up outside the, the front door. He never did any other publicity than that." So I was the first student, first one there, <laughs> so to speak. And his mindset at the time was, he says, well, you know, Bobby, my, the kind of music that uh, I grew up with and I play, the, the young people, they're really not interested in it. They, they want to hear uh, the Charlie Parker and Sidney and Dizzy Gillespie. And I said, and I said well, I, I listen to those guys too, but I really uh, like your music, you know. So he was very flattered that a young guy would like his music. So that's how my lesson started. And uh, after about a month, I was coming, going over uh, once a week. And by that time, I'd moved down to Greenwich Village and had an apartment. And he said, Bobby, you know, uh, I'm working on this uh, extended ballet piece called The Voice of the Slaves. And I wondered, uh, I'm trying to really get it so it can be performed. And you've had a lot of musical uh, instruction. By then, you know, I started studying classical clarinet mm -hmm, mm -hmm. while I was still in high school, so I was into that, too. Uh, I wonder, why don't you come over and, and stay with me and, and help me with this? Because we, we got a piano in the, in the room here, and you can, li you can uh, sleep on the couch there, and uh, we'll work on, help you help me with this. He had an old brush sound mirror tape machine, it was one of those machines that had the, the reels, and every once in a while something would happen, and a reel would fly off the, the machine, and, and the tape would go all over the room, oh. and we'd be crawling around on our legs, picking up this tape and trying to get it in order mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. But he, that was how I, And then finally, after about maybe a month, he said, you know, Bobby, why don't you stay, don't live in the village, come over and stay with me here, and uh, we can work on this thing, and what the heck, we might have lessons every day. So that's what happened. Mm -hmm. And I think I was the first student, but maybe there was only four or five others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you remember anything in particular about that first lesson? Yeah. Um, well, he sat at the big old upright piano, and he'd fool around and play some blues or something. He said, well, what can I do? What would you like to know? I said, well... Um, you know, I want to know about playing uh, beautiful songs. Uh, how do you think about an arrangement of how to, how to play it? And he says, well, let me see. What do we do? How about, you like uh, rock and chair? I said, yeah, oh, that's beautiful. He says, well, what you do is that first chorus, you, you're playing a melody, and you want the people not to think about you playing it, but they're thinking about, isn't that a beautiful song? I wonder who wrote that, you know. So you feature the, feature the melody. 
and maybe after you've done that for a chorus, then do it again, play it again, maybe little variations here and there. And then you want to get the people on your side because maybe they don't never heard of you, don't know you, mm -hmm. but they'll know that melody. And then he said, then you start doing little variations, getting a little away from the melody, injecting some of your own ideas. And the idea is you, you've got to, as you play, you build up the intensity of the music and you finally reach a big climax. And then often, instead of just ending on a high note, which you can do, sometimes you gradually go down and and settle down and just end up in a nice soft passage and they all will be smiling and very happy you know so that was one of my early lessons in form how to how to because Sidney, of course was a prolific composer and he never had any uh, instruction about how to write arrangements or anything mm -hmm. but he heard all these sounds i mean he had a, a great ear and he was starting using uh, uh, ninth chords and sixth chords and things like that, which a lot of his contemporaries, you know, clarinet players like Johnny Dodds and Jimmy Noon, weren't, weren't really into it. He mm -hmm. had a very sophisticated ear. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he and Armstrong were great buddies in New Orleans. And they uh, they actually, Bechet played cornet, too, and they used to play cornet duets on these oh, yeah. marches. Uh, you know, parades in New Orleans. So he had a very, and he, so he and uh, Armstrong were good, good buddies, and they loved to to play together and hang out together. In fact, Johnny Hodges once was asked about what were his influence, early influences. Mm -hmm. He says, "Well, you know, uh, Harry Carney and I were were neighbors in Cambridge, and and when that." Uh, that arm, that record came out. Clarence Williams' uh, Blue Five of, of Cakewalk and Babies. Man, we got that record, and Bechet absolutely knocked us out. But we were knocked out by Louis Armstrong too. <laughs> I mean, he said that he said that was a big influence on him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you got a life lesson, not just a music lesson. Oh, that's from right. That's right. Yeah. And then he said, uh, "Do you practice your scales?" Oh, I said, "Oh, yes, I do." He said, well, I'm going to give you a piece that you can learn to play. It'll help you on the scales. It's called Ragging the Scale. One of those pieces. And uh, so that was, that was on my first lesson. That was the other, other piece that I learned. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you remember Sidney Bechet's boat? Yeah, that was a little later on. He, was, he, had, he bought this boat, and he had it out in Sheepshead Bay. And... Uh, he had all these books about navigation and everything because he, he would have to, to take the boat out of the harbor. He'd have to get a license, you know. So he was studying because he wanted to, to, he said, I think I may uh, take the boat and, and sail down to, uh, it was a motorboat, mm -hmm. sail down to the Caribbean or somewhere, you know. Well, one thing or another, and then he started work, getting work more, and, and, and he never got around to really studying the boat, uh, the books. So... He had a big launch of the boat, and it was sitting there, and they with all these people. Fred Robbins, who was a, one of the principal disc jockeys, jazz jockeys mm -hmm. like like you are in New York, was was there, and, and some of the musicians, Mez, of course, and and we launched the boat. You know, well, what happens was once I moved in with him, it was getting to be uh, springtime and summer, and we would uh, get some. Uh, 
sandwich stuff or hot dogs or a case of beer, and we'd take the rowboat and row out to the boat and just sit, sit out there in the boat and, and enjoy ourselves, you know. Uh-huh. And then he he would hang out at the uh, the, uh, the clubhouse, the boathouse where the, the people, and there was a little piano there, and he would sit down and hmm. play piano for all these people who never heard of him, but they were, you know, hey, Sydney, And... Uh, so that was fun too, but the boat never left the harbor. <laughs> <laughs> well, a ship without a sail. Yeah, huh? right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> now, um, Bechet, did he become a? Uh, uh, did you begin to sort of imitate or ape his uh, style as a clarinetist and saxophone oh, player? Oh yeah, and, yeah. He, yeah. Was, he was my role you, model. You became a kind of protege. Yeah, that's right. Bechet. And I listened to all, all his records and heard the early records mm-hmm. uh, and, and the uh, the uh, sensational records he made with the original Feet Warmers. Uh, in the early 30s, mm-hmm. Maple Leaf Rag sure. in that session, you know. Lay your racket. Uh, lay your racket, yeah, da- yeah, yeah. racket daddy, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and I definitely, I was playing uh, clarinet and beginning to get some control on the straight soprano. Uh, that was a difficult one to tame, so to speak. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, but, yeah. Was, uh, and then after a while, he uh, started to work at... Uh, Jimmy Ryan's, I think this would have been the fall of uh, 1946 or 7. And then, so I'd go to go into work with him every night, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, what, what would happen around 12, he'd, he'd go back on the stand and he'd beckon, hey, Bobby, come on up. And so I'd come up and get my clarinet. I wasn't, I was a little wary of playing the soprano at that point. Mm-hmm. I, was, I was still on clarinet. And we'd play duets until 3.30 or 4 in the morning when the club closed. And you were a teenager still. Yeah. Uh, 18, 19. 19, uh, yeah. 19, and, yeah, maybe 19, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, you wrote a memoir, uh, published a memoir uh, 20 or more years ago, uh, Music Was Not Enough. And um, uh, and I you know, discern that uh, your life has, um, has required a kind of odyssey into yourself and, and a discovery of, um, of yourself and... And that is certainly translated right into your horns, where you had to find your own voice. Uh, That's true, yeah. Um, well, uh, my inspiration for writing a book, or really the person who egged me on into doing it, was my beloved wife, Pug, who uh, gave me a, a feeling that I could do a lot of things that I never even considered doing, including <laughs> writing a, a biography. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, I got a publisher in England who was interested in uh, publishing it. And uh, so I started by talking into a tape machine, you know, just reminiscing. And I would say, you know, I remember that time that Big Sid, uh, we were, I was, he was working with me and we did this and that. And then I, and, and Louis Armstrong, you know, he was my great favorite. I would love and things like that. Finally, Pug said, I don't want you talking about Big Sid and, and Louis Armstrong. I want you to talk about Bob Wilbur. I mean, what did you feel? Mm-hmm. I mean, what were you thinking about and all that, you know? Sure. And there, that's where I came up with the idea of uh, music was not enough. And what, what did I mean by that? Well, I, I have a little prologue in the book. I looked at myself in the mirror, and I was nearly 50, nearly 50 years old. I, I didn't like what I was looking at, and I said, there's something missing in my life, you know. Uh, 
because when I discovered jazz when I was like 13 or 14, oh, jazz was the greatest thing in the world. And you didn't have to worry about anything else, you know, particularly girls, you know, <laughs> and all that stuff. So everything was going to be in music. Mm -hmm. And I realized as I looked at myself, well, I, I've missed a lot by just concentrating totally on music and not thinking about getting relationships with other people, particularly with girls. And uh, and maybe, and I was thinking about some of the famous jazz musicians who were great artists and everything, but who their private life was, was a shambles, you know. They were uh, maybe into alcohol or drugs, or they were uh, constantly on the road and their marriages weren't working out. And he said, gee, they, they don't have a very good life. You know, I said, I want to have a good life, but I want to play music, but still have a good life. And and uh, Pug has been the answer for that for all these years we've been together. He's, he's challenged me to do things which I didn't really think, I didn't have the confidence to feel out I could do it. Things like uh, we got tied up with uh, a company uh, and a guy named Anders Ullman in Stockholm mm -hmm. where I went to play who had a record company, Fantastic Records. Mm -hmm. And he uh, he was a clarinet player himself, and but he loved my playing, and he, and he said, Bob, what do you want to do? What do you want to record? And she says, well, tell him you'd like to record the Mozart clarinet quintet. Because my introduction to Mozart mm -hmm. was when I was still in high school going into the local record shop, and there's an album there on the counter by the a Budapest String Quartet with guest Benny Goodman playing the Mozart clarinet quintet. And I, I said, Mozart, I didn't know, who's Mozart? I, I, but that's Benny Goodman, it's got to be good. <laughs> so I, I listened to it, and that introduced me really? to that oh. whole world mm -hmm. of classical music. Oh. You know? mm -hmm. And so he said, well, we're going to form a, a classical label, and we'll call it uh, Artemis and We'll record the, uh, the Mozart clarinet quintet with a very good string quartet here in uh, in Stockholm. So from there, I went on and I recorded the Beethoven, Mozart, and Brahms trios. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I I loved this music mm. with my parallel love of jazz right from the beginning. I was very fortunate. My first teacher was the director of music at Scarsdale High School. And he, of course, taught every instrument besides clarinet, but he was an excellent classical clarinetist himself. So at the same time my interest in jazz was developing, uh, I was going through the classical repertoire uh, with him. So we had, I had this parallel thing. I finally got to the point where it was, I was graduating from high school and I had to figure out, well, what am I going to do now? You know, well, my dad, of course, was in publishing, textbook publishing, and he sort of had this dream that I would go to an Ivy League college like Amherst or Dartmouth yeah. or uh, yeah. Yale. Or, yeah, sure. So even when I think I was probably in the 11th grade, he would take him on trips. He knew the, the presidents of all these universities and the professors. And uh, But by then, I, got, I was hooked on jazz, and mm -hmm. I said, Say, well, this is very nice here and very old and everything. It doesn't feel like what I want to do. Mm -hmm. So, uh, 
finally uh, we we sort of had a compromise because he said, "Well, you gotta you gotta keep going to school, you know, get a degree." So we settled on Eastman School of Music because my dad was, published the textbooks of, of Eastman. So uh, I went up to Eastman. Well, in Rochester, New York, which is pretty far north and it's kind of cold, there was no no jazz in Rochester mm-hmm. at Eastman School of Music. Mm-hmm. But it was a very good classical music school, you know. So I worked hard at it and everything. I come home for Christmas, and my father says, well, son, how's it going up there, Eastman? How do you like it? It's, it's a good experience. I said, well, Dad, yes, it is, but you know, I'll finish the first term here, but I, I really don't want to stay there. And he says, well, you don't want to stay? Well, well, son, what do you want to do? I said, well, you know, Dad, that pl- block in New York on 52nd Street, you know, between 6th and 5th Avenue and 6th Avenue, you know those clubs that I go, like Jimmy Ryan's, I go go to, to? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, well, I just want to hang out on 52nd Street and hang out in the clubs and get to meet the, the guys that are playing there. Maybe I'll get a chance to sit in and all that. My dad has a classic comment. He said, son, you want to spe- spend the rest of your life blowing your lungs out in smoky dives? I said, yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, God bless him. He said, well, if that's what you want to do. But he says, and he talked it over with Mother, and he says, Mother and I have decided uh, you, we'll let you do that, and you can go into your clubs and everything, but you, you've got to develop some kind of a skill where you could earn a living, you know. So they said, why don't, why don't you go to typing school? And there was a typing school up in White Plains. And so for a while I was up there and trying to learn to type. <laughs> I never learned. I just My heart was not in it, course, obviously. Sure. But then I started getting, we had this little band, the Wildcats. Mm. Yep. And we started to, uh, we used to hang around at Jimmy Ryan's where they had these Sunday afternoon jam sessions mm. on, uh, on Sunday afternoon at 5 to 9. And a guy named Milt Gabler, who was the director of Commodore Music Shop and mm-hmm. the Commodore Recording Record Company, uh, we just used to. He got to see us every week, and he and we kind of, you know, Milt, we we got a, a little band, you know, and we call ourselves the Wildcats. And could we just play one number? And he said, Oh no, come on, don't bother me. And finally, he said, Okay, you guys go up there and play, you know. So we got up, and here we are. I mean, we're, we're, I was, what, 19, 18 maybe, and Johnny Glazel, our trumpet player, I think he was only 15 mm-hmm. at the time. Mm-hmm. And, but we were into playing the rep- repertoire of Jello Morton's Red Hot Peppers, King Oliver, mm-hmm. the Armstrong Hot Five. And this was w- right at the beginning of the interest in traditional jazz that was developing both in the West Coast, San Francisco, Lou Waters, and also in New York. But nobody had heard a band of these kids <laughs> playing sure. traditional jazz. Mm. We made a tremendous impression. And uh, not only on the on the people at the uh, at the jam session, but on Milt, who said, this band is great. And I says, oh, we're going we're gonna to make a record with you guys on Commodore. Mm-hmm. That was our first record date. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's that's how it all started. And by then... Uh, I was, we were doing things with the, with the Wildcats, and I was uh, living with Sydney. But then Sydney went off off to uh, Chicago to play at a club called Jazz Limited, mm-hmm. 
So I was used to, used to uh, got got to know Eddie Condon, of course, and he used to let me use the club to rehearse my band in in the afternoons, you know. So I'm down there rehearsing the Wildcats, and the phone rings, and Bill, the uh, cleanup man, says, "Hey, Bob, it's for you." And hello, hey man, it's Mez. Oh, hey Mez, how you doing, man? He said, "Well, we got a problem. You know, I, I called Bache because he's going to go to France with me, and he and he says." I, he says, well, I talked it over with the boss of the club here, Ruth Reinhardt, and I, and I told her, you know, I'm going to France for just a week, a little uh, festival of jazz mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. and, she, and she says, no, you're not, Sidney. He said, well, what do you mean? Look at your contract. And she said, he said, she won't me, let me off even for a week. And Mess mm -hmm. says, oh, my God, you're the star of the band. And Sidney says, Mez, calm down. Don't worry. You take Bobby in my place. <laughs> so here I am, a kid of 19, going to France for the first international jazz festival ever held in Nice mm -hmm. and with the Mez Mesro band and on the same plane flying over with the newly formed Louis Armstrong All-Stars mm. with Jack Teagarden, Barney Bigard, Sid Catlett, and a newcomer on band, on piano named Earl Hines, <laughs> who replaced the original piano player, uh, Dick Carey, yep. because at that time, 1947, 48, the big bands were dying. Mm -hmm. And so... so uh, Hines had disbanded. And yeah, and Joe, Joe Glazer work, huh? said, well, I can't afford to keep you going on the road. Go on, go yep. on. I'll put you, I'll put you with, uh, with, with Lewis. Who, of course, Joe booked Lewis all those years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So here we were going, and we we flew into Paris, spent a couple of days in Paris, and uh, Dizzy Gillespie was in Paris that first night when we got there, giving a concert with his brand new big band, mm -hmm. and we were all excited. I was saying, "We'll go we'll listen to Diz," and we got off the, the plane, and these French critics and people said, oh, you can't do that. No, 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 that's the enemy. And the, you, you try to go there, and there's, there'll be a riot, you know. We just want to, they're, they're fellow jazzmen, we want to say hello. Oh, no, that's, that, you can't absolutely do that. So <laughs> that was the the, 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 sure. uh, the great split in yeah. jazz uh, with, between the, the, the moldy figs yep. and the beboppers, mm -hmm, you know. Mm -hmm, we all mm -hmm, know about that. Mm -hmm, yeah. But anyway, we went to, we went to Nice, and uh, I'll never forget that first night, there was no time to rehearse, and Earl had just joined the band on piano, so uh, they was in the big, beautiful theater, curtain down, the room absolutely filled, buzzing with people, all excited and everything. And then from behind the curtain, they hear, and people, oh, oh my God, people started crying. They were yelling, screaming. It was, it's such a thrilling thing to see it. And then gradually the curtain opened, and there they were, mm -hmm. Lewis leading the band in mm -hmm. Sleepy Time mm -hmm. Down South. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then, after that, applause, applause, and Lewis comes up, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, now we're going to play so-and-so and so. And he kept calling his tunes and said, now we're going to do one of them good old good ones, uh, a Monday date, you got it, Earl. <laughs> and, and I was in the front row, and uh, I, he leaned over to Arvel Shaw, the, the, 
bass player, mm -hmm. and he said, what the four-letter word? What the four-letter word? Is, what key is it in? <laughs> and he'd, he'd start these introductions, and he'd come in in the wrong key, and the band was scuffling, you know. Oh, so it was funny. <laughs> but uh, that was the beginning of the, uh, the Louis Armstrong All-Stars, uh, which started actually when uh, Armstrong and Bechet were supposed to appear at this concert mm. at Town Hall mm. with an all-star New York band with Bobby Hackett and, and Jack Teagarden and uh, George Wetling and all these players. And uh, so I'm living with Bechet, and uh, I said, Hey, Sid, I'm going to go in town and catch a movie. I'll meet you at, uh, at uh, Town Hall, you know, around 5 o'clock. And so I went to the movie, and I came over to Town Hall, and, oh, they were running around backstage. Ernie Anderson and Fred Robbins, mm -hmm. who had put the thing together, mm -hmm. said, Where's Bechet? Where's Bechet? I said, Well, well he's he coming in. You know, he's, I, I went and came in early. He says, Oh, it's, it's getting too late. Bobby, you got to play. You're going to play in this place. I said, Oh. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm not ready for this company. Yeah. Maybe a few years from now, but not now. Uh -huh. And so he never showed up. Mm. So the concert went ahead without mm -hmm. him, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So and I got home that night, and I said to Sidney, what happened, man? You never showed up. He says, well, Bobby, you know, I left the house, and then I got on the subway. I don't know. I didn't feel well, and I must have collapsed because I woke up hours and hours later. I was still riding on the subway back and forth, you know. Well, I never really believed that story mm -hmm. because he had a funny thing about Armstrong. Mm -hmm. He would talk about Armstrong. Oh, when we were kids, man, we used to hang out and play together and everything. But he's very ambivalent about uh, Armstrong's because of Lewis's great success, sure, you know. Sure. And New Orleans musicians had this tendency to be jealous and maybe a little paranoid, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, uh, so I think at the last minute he says, "Oh, the hell with it! I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to play that guy," you know. Mm -hmm. And he yeah. just didn't come. Yeah. I think yeah. that's what happened. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but anyway, here, the other part of that story is apparently Joe Glazer, who had to be talked into letting Fred Robbins and Ernie Anderson have Armstrong and not the sixteen-piece band, sure. yeah. and. Ernie Anderson finally ended up going up to uh, Joe Glazer's uh, office, into the Joe Glazer's office, and putting a thousand dollar check on the. And here, uh, this I only want Lewis. Leave the band at home, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that was the only way. But apparently, he was standing at the rear of uh, town hall, and uh, he was looking at the stage, and there was only like six or seven musicians on stage. And he was saying, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Wait a minute. I'm, I've got a 15-piece band that's out on the road. It's only six musicians. I, that's going to be about only uh, so much money, you know. Sure. And a so lot less expensive. That was the beginning of the Armstrong All-Stars. Yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, uh, I can see we have uh, just a few minutes, um, uh, Bob, for, uh, for this conversation. But um, you mentioned, you know, looking in the mirror at age 50, here you are still in your teens, uh, Sidney Bechet's protege, um, a little nervous about uh, joining Armstrong's All-Stars on the stage of Town Hall. Um, can you uh, bring us into a little bit of a sense of your own um, 
establishing an identity, uh, that uh, critical, uh, you know, junction that, uh, that happens in, in our lives where we have to find our own voice, uh, as it were. Was that something that was happening around then? Were you feeling more compelled to, um, to break, uh, you know, out of the Berchet mold? Or the, uh, <coughs> yeah, uh, that was maybe a little later on. But I was beginning to uh, think about, well, you know, I can play and I can sound like pretty much like Sidney sometimes. I said, but he's still the master, you know. I said, sure. I've, I've got to figure out something that, that doesn't really uh, just sound like Bechet, you know. One of the big motivating things was, this was during the Korean War, I was got my draft notice. And I said, oh, my God, I don't want to be fighting a, a war. And at the same time, I was down there. I think the Chinese had just crossed the Yala River, and suddenly the American army was in a lot of trouble, you know. So uh, then I got the basic training at Fort Dix, right outside mm -hmm. of New York City. Mm -hmm. And I went over to the band school and auditioned and got, it was, I was eight weeks basic training so I was going into a specialist and then eight weeks being in a specialist like typing or band. And I got in the band. Hmm. So uh, that's where uh, I began to think about, oh, to get in the band, I said, you know, I, I'm not going to get in the band with just playing clarinet and soprano sax. I said, I've got to get myself either a tenor or an alto. Yeah. So I remember I called up Bud Freeman and said, Bud, will you take me down to the music store and help me pick out a, a tenor? I think I want to play tenor, you know, because I love Bud Freeman's playing. And so that's when I I put down, I sold the soprano and played the, playing the tenor. And that's when I was beginning to think about, well, wait a minute. I'm not Sidney Bechet. Who am I? And this, uh, I did a, r a radio show years later in Britain where it was a, a show called uh, Who Am I? You know, how a jazz musician tries to figure out his own identity. Because in the last analysis, you only can really be yourself. And this idea of spending your lifetime, like many of the French soprano saxophone players, spend their whole career trying to sound exactly like Sidney Bechet. And they, they get pretty close, but it's not the real thing. And they, the idea of trying to establish their identity, oh, that is the last thing they want to do. They want to become Sidney Bechet, you know. So uh, that's when I began to seriously think. And then I also had a great other influence. My first influence on the clarinet was Benny Goodman. Mm. So I had this... I loved Benny's playing, and I got a chance to play with his big band later on, and Bechet. And somehow I want—I had—I've got to connect these two big influences into one style, which will encompass not only playing the clarinet but the soprano sax too. And that took some while working at it, but I began to. From the beginning, I was getting uh, publicity. Since I got a write-up in the New Yorker magazine, uh, and this little band that I had was creating quite an interest. And uh, then I came back from playing at the Nice Festival with Mesro, and uh, through through Sydney's influence, uh, I got the owner of the uh, Savoy Cafe in Boston, it was a marvelous jazz club, 
to uh, to hire my band, you know. So I got my old buddies from the the uh, Mesro band, uh, uh, Jimmy Archie on trombone, Henry Goodwin on trumpet, Pop Foster on the bass, and then my old contemporary uh, pal from the Wildcat days, uh, Dick Wellstead on oh, piano. Mm -hmm. And we also got uh, a marvelous drummer, Tommy Benford, oh, yeah. who was famous f for playing with the original Red Hot Peppers, you know. Yes. So that was my band, and we were a big sensation in Boston because at, at that time, the interest in traditional jazz among the college kids in New England was growing all the time. So we were, we were, we used to pack that club on weekends. The crowds were lined up around the block. It was a tough gig because at, at first when I played there, I was just had a trio with Dick Wellstood on piano and Baby Dodds on drums, mm. and we played opposite these bands, and they were called jump bands. They were really veterans of the big black uh, big bands, mm -hmm. uh, which and by, by then the bottom had dropped out of that, you know. So they were forming into these bands of six to eight players, and... Uh, like Louis Jordan and his Tiffany Yeah, that five. was a typical and, one at the yep. time. Mm -hmm. And they, I remember well, we, we were playing at the Savoy, which was in the, the black section of town, mm -hmm. which f featured almost all black uh, m bands. Uh, but I remember the black bands had as a, the big th song, like the Dixieland bands, our big song was When the Saints Go Marching In. Sure. Their big song was Flying Home. Mm, sure. And... The the band the tenor player would always play the chorus from the original record. Was it Arnett Cobb that played uh, Illinois Jacquet? Illinois Jacquet. Yeah, yeah. And they would sing along with 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 the tenor player. Do 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 do, and the whole audience knew it. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, oh, yeah. but I had my little trio, and we were playing uh, the Pearls by Jelly Roll Morton and these things, and there was a contingent of white college kids who were coming in to hear me and but I only played 20 minutes then the the main attraction was this jump bands who uh -huh. played 40 minutes yeah. but gradually my uh, audience kept growing all the time and finally the boss called me and said you know I'd like you to come in and be the, the be the main attraction because you've got a real following here in Boston uh, put together like a six-piece band you know so that was the beginning mm -hmm. of playing in at the Savoy at the same time, I met George Ween, who was a piano player around Boston, sure. and he used to come in. They would have, like, as I was originally the intermission group, they would have an intermission group opposite me, and he'd be playing piano with them. And uh, got to know him, and finally he said, uh, Bobby, I'm going to open up a club in Boston, my first club, and it's going to be called Storyville, and uh, I want you to have the band, you know. By then... Jimmy Archie had taken over my band because I felt I, I needed to grow, and the band was sort of into a into a mold. They kept mm -hmm, mm -hmm. guys would play the same choruses every mm -hmm. night on the same mm -hmm. tunes, and I, I I knew I wanted to stretch out. So he says, "Well, put together a good band, you know, get some names in there." I said, "Okay, George," and so I said, "Who will I get?" I, I, I knew that Big Sid Catlett mm. was just freelancing around New York. Mm -hmm. He's having some health problems, and he'd left the Armstrong All-Stars. I think Cozy Cole took over. Yep. And I found out how to get in touch with him. And uh, 
I bucked up my, I mean, I was kind of scared about it, but I bucked up my college, my courage and said, Big Sid, you remember me? I was with Mesro's band in Nice. Oh yeah, Bobby, Bobby, how you doing, man? I said, fine, I'm putting together a band to take it in the Savoy. I'd love to have you on drums. He says, well, yeah, that sounds good. I'm just, you know, freelancing a little around New York. And then I said, who do I also I want in the band? Well, I loved those recordings on Blue Note of Vic Dickinson mm-hmm. and uh, and Sidney uh, to Paris mm-hmm. and the ones that had Edmund Hall and then yep. some of them with Bechet. Yep. And I said, if I can get, I can get Vic Dickinson and Sidney to Paris, oh, what a band it's going to be. So I called up uh, Sidney and he's and I called up Vic first and, and he says. Oh, I'm afraid not, man. I'm working with Bobby Hackett now. You know, I'm regular with his band, but thanks for asking me. Then I called Sid to Paris, and I said, Sid, I'm doing this gig up in Boston uh, at this uh, uh, new club, Storyville. I'd love to have you on, on cl- trumpet. And he says, he says, fine. He said, well, you know, I can't get, can't get Vic Dickinson. Vic's working with Bobby. He says, well, get my brother. He's not doing much around New York. He's, he'd be fine. So my my band opened up with Sid, Cindy de Paris and Wilbur de Paris, mm-hmm. and uh, and then this piano player had played with the uh, one of the bands that was the Jump Bands when I first in Boston, and I always liked his playing, and so I found out he was working. Red Richards is his name. He was oh, yeah. working mm-hmm. doing a lounge gig in some bar in in Brooklyn or somewhere, so I called him and said. Hey, Red, you remember me? I'm the clarinet player that was working in a trio opposite you when you were at the Savoy. Oh, yeah, Bobby, how you doing, man? I said, well, I'm taking a band in, into the uh, Storyville, this new club, and I'd love to have you on piano. He says, oh, Bobby, I, I, I don't know any of that. I've never played any Dixieland music. I don't know that. I said, don't worry about it. I'm gonna, I'll write you charts, and you can learn all those songs, you know. So that was the band. Then we had John Fields, who was a marvelous local Boston uh, bass player. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that began to, things began to happen, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then I recorded with that band, and uh, uh, one thing led to another, and here I am today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for coming by today, Bobby, and let's... Uh, I hope we can pick this up when you're uh, back in the uh, area. Why not? Uh, we got year, we got so. a lot of territory to cover. We do indeed. Yeah, we're, I'm, we're right about 1951 I'm, at this point. I'm, huh? I'm 82 years old. <laughs> yeah, right. and I'm, I'm still doing new things. I got to tell you about. <laughs> sure, yeah. sure. Okay. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Tom. We'll, we'll pick up another time. Right. right. Good. <laughs>